From the vistas of the Grand Tetons, this is Lost River Legends. Here we discuss Bigfoot, skinwalkers, UFOs, aliens, and other paranormal topics. We want you to join us in seeking that which is hidden and obscured from our view. and get settled in and comfortable as your hosts, James and Brett, enter into the realm of shadows. Enjoy the show. Tonight, we're going to be talking to Duke, um, Duke Sullivan. Um, He has a lot of uh, Bigfoot experience. When I say a lot, um, I, I do mean a lot. He has a, a vast knowledge of these creatures. Um, he has a hefty um, repertoire of experience under his belt, and we're glad that he could come on tonight and uh, and share with us uh, some of his knowledge, and uh, particularly some of that knowledge as it pertains to Idaho and Montana and uh, the Bigfoot surrounding that area. And Duke, how are you doing this evening? Well, I'm doing great. Glad to hear from you guys over there in Idaho. Great. Yeah, we're super glad to have you on. Um, I know we've talked a few times and we've really established a, a, a fun relationship and we're learning more about each other and the work that you're doing. And uh, can you kind of give us a brief uh, rundown of what your what your latest work is, is, uh, is doing right now? What are you working on right now? Uh, I got a bunch of projects underway right now. Uh, since my uh, channel on YouTube, World Bigfoot Radio, hit a million views, I decided that I should probably listen to all the people out there that were demanding I make T-shirts. So that's been well and truly taken care of. And if you're interested in some really cool-looking Bigfoot stuff, go check out World Bigfoot Radio Swag on Facebook. And we're also in the middle of the Adpocalypse on YouTube. And since YouTube's the home base of my show and I'm not getting paid for anything, Thanks to the Apocalypse to monetize my entire channel. Um, I'm setting up a new website, worldbigfootcentral.com, and I'm going to start posting everything there. And the um, difference between my show and a lot of the other ones being that I'm not a podcast. I actually like to show video and pictures and whatnot. So unlike a lot of the other listen-to-it shows out there where they're talking about Bigfoot encounters and stuff, I tend to have a lot more researchers on and stuff, and they actually have pictures of video to share, the ones that I bring on. So if they're talking about blah, 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 track the pictures right there, you can look at it. Da-da-da-da-da, I got a video of a Bigfoot, the video's being shown, you can look at it. So it's all together there on the show for you to make your own decision, how much credibility you want to give to these guys. And uh, I personally don't put anybody on my show that I don't have confidence in that they actually know what they're talking about. So, um, you know, from my standpoint, uh, you know, not it, nobody's right about everything 100% of the time. But the guests I have on, I tend to pick because I think they're, you know, at least on the right track and they're getting some good evidence. And just from that standpoint, they're worth having on the show to present what they got. So that's what I've been up to, mainly. Okay. So you, you just mentioned uh, an interesting point here, and I just kind of wanted to um, tie into that just a little bit more. You, when, you, when you say that you invite guests on to have uh, a certain evidence um, uh, surrounding Bigfoot, what, what do you, what do you uh, clarify that evidence as? Well, it all depends on the nature of what they're doing. I got a guest coming up here that's uh, right over in your neck, woods in Idaho, that just got done photographing a gigantic find of Bigfoot tracks by the deserted side of a lake that hardly anybody ever goes to. It was nice and muddy, 
and one of them is about 150 consecutive tracks. He's got tracks from five different individuals ranging from six inches up to 15 inches, so it's an entire family probably. Um, you know, interesting things like uh, the 13-incher, presumably the female, had one of the six-inch tracks that was trotting along with it, and it would take like two or three steps, and then his steps would disappear, and presumably was being picked up by the female and carried for ways. And then apparently she would put it down, it would take a few more steps, and she'd pick it back up again. And the other thing that's interesting is that he was actually getting a chance to, since there are so many tracks there, measure the intervals in between steps so that he had a good um, record, you know, having multiple steps to look at what was the average step length. And so you can take that average step length for the size of the tracks, and using that data, you can sort of extrapolate to larger size individuals. Well, step length for this one is this, step length for this one is this. Then if there's one with an 18-inch foot, how big would the step length be? And that really helps you when you're out in the field if you find one lone track and it's X size. Okay, look at your chart. How far apart should the next step be? Start looking in that radius around where the first one is, and there's a better chance you're going to find another one. So all this sort of stuff is really helpful. This is what I consider to be good, worthwhile to present evidence. That and, you know, researchers that get actual video or pictures of Bigfoot, um, you know, audio from them, that sort of thing. Of course, that's always, you know, I want to get those guys on first. That's awesome that um, that you're getting getting that level of quality of stuff. And to me, I'm just, I'm still um, reeling a little bit because that feels like that's in my backyard, you know. When you say anywhere in Idaho, really, most, most places, um, you know, in southern Idaho is going to be within a three to four hour range. Um, today, I took some time to go out and check out um, where the closest BFRO report uh, was and kind of put into perspective uh, this guy's story. And um, it's really interesting, just some of the topography and some of the surrounding uh, flora and, and fauna in the area area and uh to just kind of put uh, a visual to to someone's actual experience so i can i can appreciate uh what you're doing there with the video channel and also just getting your your feet on the ground and uh, some of your own stuff so that's all those are all different factors that really help out well i appreciate that yeah um, actually i've been feeling guilty about doing a little bit too much of that recently because i had like five shows in a row where it was all stuff from over here in Montana and it was all folks that had been going out on, uh, you know, little research tracks with me during the summer. And I just figured, you know, rather than having boring me tell you what happened, it'd be more fun to have the guests who were with me tell you what they saw and heard and photographed and, and, you know, what happened while they were there. <laughs> one of them walked apparently about 10 feet past one. Uh, it was just right on the side of this trailer walking down at night and he didn't even realize that they got video of the eye shine of this ginormous Bigfoot sitting there watching him walk past. And he's going, come on, Hank, come on. And the dog doesn't want to come forward. He's like, why won't the dog come forward? Uh, yeah, the dog knows that he's Bigfoot right there that you're not paying attention to. That's why he doesn't want to come forward. And then uh, the same track that we were on to that, uh, the other guest that I had on, one of the other guests I had on her from was Shane. And the very same night that happened, about 4 o'clock in the morning, he got up and he uh, went to make a bathroom call. And uh, he saw what looked like a very suspicious tree that wasn't there earlier and ran his flashlight across it, not once, not twice, but three times. And it wasn't a tree, and it was covered with hair. And uh, 
he was a little alarmed, but you know, he was there to see a Bigfoot, so he was kind of happy he saw one. So that was sort of the stuff that we've been documenting this summer, and then we took a late fall trek up to the Hidden Valley up in the middle of the Sapphire Mountain Range at about 7,000 feet, and uh, got snowed on, <laughs> even though it was only the end of October. Um, but we found a bunch of tracks and tree structures and stuff we were up there, too. So, yeah, even with the name World Bigfoot Radio, sorry, I've been monopolizing too much time here in Montana. But I've had a couple of shows from over in Idaho, and actually the longest show that I had, the most parts to it, was the Glag Saga, which was a guy that was over there in your neck of the woods. And uh, when he was out hunting as a teenager, he ran into an orphan Bigfoot and ended up making friends with uh, with him and uh, spending parts of the next five years with him, basically. So it's uh, one of the most intense Bigfoot stories that I've ever heard. It's similar to the uh, Ostman encounter where Albert Ostman back in the 1920s got kidnapped by a, a troop of them, but they, they held him for five days and got away. And uh, this one actually made friends with the guy in question, and uh, they they kept uh, hanging out together for the better part of five years. So there's a lot of information in Bigfoot on that one. And it's got to probably be the best uh, recorded Bigfoot um, interaction or encounter from the state of Idaho at this point. Right. Yeah, the, that Black Saga, that's... You know, one of those things that uh, really stands out in my mind, I mean, not just because it's in Idaho, but but just the nature of the story itself, uh, the details in the story, all the specifics, and, you know, you just can't recall that, you know, on the fly. Those are, those are some, some powerful testimonies uh, surrounding this, uh, yeah. uh, this glag. Yeah, just to let everybody know, the guy in question here is named Kevin Lang, L-A-I-N-G, and he has his own YouTube channel and actually does live feeds every Sunday at 8 Central. So if you listen to the saga and you, want, you had questions you wanted to ask him or something, you can just drop in on any of his weekly live, live chats and ask questions to him. And this, again, speaks to the veracity of the story, because how are you going to make up a story that covers five years and remember all those details such that anybody can ask you any kind of question and you're not going to like ever trip up and contradict yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's impossible. And 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 one of the one of the other telling things, the most telling thing for me, was the emotion that he was talking about. Um, I mean, this guy just he could hardly get through some of these sentences and and get through some of the story without getting choked up and 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 crying uh, because of the situation. Oh, God, yeah, he. He had me breaking down a couple times, too, actually, and there were a lot of edits in the original seven parts of that where, uh, you know, he would be just having such a tough time with the memories that he was having that he'd have to stop, take a break for a little while, and then we'd have to chop that out, or he'd actually, you know, break down and start crying, and, you know, you don't want to have minutes of crying on the air, so that gets edited out. But um, the end result was still so obviously gut-wrenching that practically everybody that listened to it ended up crying when they listened to it. Yeah, I noticed, um, you know, it was it was really interesting in the story how um, his family life wasn't the best and his brothers were kind of jerks. And it was kind of his little escape to go out and spend some time with Glag and, you know, bring him a deer and kind of reconnect and all that. Yeah, that was sort of glad didn't have a family, and he, by way of uh, being the youngest kid and picked on by his older brothers, he kind of didn't have really a functioning family either. 
So he would try and get away from his evil brothers that were picking on him and go out in the woods to get away from him. And what was out in the woods? His best friend, the orphan Bigfoot. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I mean, if I was his boots, I'd be totally encouraged to be there as much as possible. That would be way funner than hanging around with me and older brothers picking on me. So, I mean, that makes total sense to me. So, you know, neither one of them had anybody else to to bond with, to be their friend, and they were it's just the right age for it. We estimate now from the size that Glag was when he met him and, and when they parted company that Glag was a lot younger than him, um, probably seven or eight years old at most wow. when he first met him. And then, you know, five years older than that, so 13 or so when they parted company. And he was already over nine feet tall at that age. Holy cow. So is there, um, and I know that there, um, there was some stories that he told about when he would wrestle um, with Glag, and and Glag really had to learn how to tone down his strength because it, you know, obviously there's a huge, huge strength difference. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, Kevin was no wimp at this time. He was, you know, in the mid two hundred pound range. He was into wrestling and martial arts and everything. Right. You know, he was he was like Mr. Muscle, and he was still a twig like ragdoll compared to the far of the young Sasquatch. So yeah, and you know, like he even mentioned that. Greg knew he was puny and frail by comparison and was trying to be careful and would still hurt him occasionally. Mm-hmm. It kind of tells a lot. I mean, just the fact that, you know, he was able to communicate to Kevin what his name was, right? And at approximately yeah, Kevin. Th- 13 years old, that, that this thing was nine feet tall. I mean, those things must grow fast um, for a reason. Yeah. Well, you know, you know they, I mean, don't forget... Well, for sure. I mean, I think they reach their maximum height sooner than a human would, but they probably don't reach, reach their maximum size sooner than a human would. So in other words, if you're talking about like a human boy, um, 16, 17 years old, a lot of them are almost close to what their, their full height's going to be, but they haven't filled out yet. And it'll be like their mid-20s before they broaden out to get about as heavy as they're going to get. Um, and that could be what we're looking at with Bigfoot, too, where they actually, you know, they get, and because you see a lot of these reports where they see seven, eight, you know, foot Bigfoot, and um, that's what most of the encounters are. They see them at random, you know, they're crossing the road late at night or walking along in ditches or driving along or something. And, you know, a lot of them say, well, it just looked kind of like a human, only covered his hair, and da 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 da. Well, you're seeing a juvenile that hasn't pulled out yet. Because when you see an adult, it's more like looking at an elephant. You know, these things are wide. You can't mistake them for a human. I think that's a lot of the reason that people don't see the big ones. Because the big ones, it's not part of our pattern recognition. We're thinking about Bigfoot. We're thinking about, okay, Jack Link's messing with Sasquatch. It's a guy with a furry suit. He's a big guy, but it's a guy with a furry suit. So that's what our pattern recognition is. We're looking for something that looks vaguely human, furry, and a little bit bigger than us. No, 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 no. Think of something about as wide as an elephant, 10 feet tall. If it's standing in the pine trees, all you're seeing is its legs. If it doesn't move, you might think its legs are tree trunks. You won't see it at all. That brings to um, to mind the, the encounter that I was kind of revisiting today. Um, they had said that uh, they thought that it had... You know, the size of it was about seven foot. The guy said, I'm six foot. I think it was about seven foot. Um, he saw it over on the side of the road in a, in a burrow pit. And what he was doing, he, he was kind of yelling at it, 
he was yelling out at it and it was hunkering down. And then when he'd stop, he'd stop yelling, he'd stand up and look at him and then he'd yell and he'd, he'd hunker back down. But then later on, when they go to take off, the thing starts chasing them and it's keeping pace at three, 30 miles an hour. Um, and the behavior, when, when I thought about that behavior and the size, I, in my mind, I thought that that was probably an adolescent, but there's probably some bigger yep. boys up back in that draw, um, up that way out towards bone, um, Idaho. There's a lot of, there's a lot of cattle land, but then it gets into some really dense, uh, Aspen and pine. Uh, there's some cedar through there. And uh, the you know the creek through there in that area is really thick with willows, plenty of coverage. There's lots of good water, deer, you know, a good supply of food. So it's it's pretty likely that that was was probably an adolescent just based on that behavior. That's that's my guess. yeah very very likely if it wasn't roaring at them and acting like super aggressive or something that was a juvenile having fun and trying to see if he could scare them <laughs> looking for a reaction I've had a couple of guests on my show that have actually had these things pace their cars and these were adults that were serious and were trying to chase them out of their area and interestingly both reported that they had them still pacing the cars at 45 miles an hour and they had to get up over 50 before they actually pulled away from them so just, you know, for a reminder, if you're out in the woods and you're messing with Sasquatch and you think you're going to run away from them, you're wrong. You're not going to run away from them. Yeah. Even in a car. I mean, you you got to really put the pedal to the metal just to uh, to eat past these guys. So Yeah. You know, that's one thing Kevin talks about, too, because he used to have this area over sort of by the Montana border that occasionally he would go riding dirt bikes on and stuff. And it was well known by the local kids over there that if you went through that area, something would throw rocks at you. Something like noise and would pitch rocks at you. Know? So that's kind of where we came up with the joke about boulder grizzlies because, you know, nobody wants to believe there's Bigfoot. So obviously there's some kind of grizzlies that are throwing boulders at you over there, right? But uh, <laughs> again, this sort of contrasts the, um, the variation in behavior between certain areas because you didn't get that sort of thing from over by where he lived more toward you know, further into Idaho, it was over on the border where this was happening. And this is the same general area where the Bauman incident happened, as reported by President Teddy Roosevelt, where there's two fur trappers, and one of them apparently got killed by a hostile Bigfoot. And there's been, you know, like quite a few reports of people being attacked by Bigfoot over in this area. So it's, you know, again... They don't always act the same in in, in every area. In some areas, they're you know, pretty neutral, and they don't really care what you do, and they'll just kind of fade back from you and stay away from you. And other areas are really territorial, and if you go in there, you're asking for it. Um, so it's best to you know, go out in the woods and do any research on Bigfoot or something, you know, get some background information on the area you're going into before you go into it. Right. Yeah, that's super important. Um, I kind of wanted to backtrack just a little bit, you know, with this, uh, with, with GLAG, and and even with the the story that James had done some research on today that he just talked to us about up in Bone, Idaho, um, seems like there's a little bit of a sense of humor um, with with these creatures. A little, you know, that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. Is, do you think that's true? Absolutely, uh, and not only does that come through, and you know, Kevin will claim 100. percent Yeah, they got a sense of humor. They 
they would think that the Three Stooges are the funniest thing ever. They've got a very physical sense of humor. <laughs> if it doesn't hurt you seriously or something, it's just funny. Ha, ha, ha. Right, slapstick comedy. Yeah, uh, yeah, slapstick comedy. Um, he even talks about the first year that he knew Glad, you would bring up books, and he would read books to him. And Glad liked the books better than it had pictures. And Glad's favorite book was Dr. Seuss' Hop on Top. Again, physical comedy. And he just thought that was hysterically funny. That was like the funniest thing ever. So that's the big sense of humor right there. So if they're pitching rocks at you and, you know, getting a reaction out of you, if they slap your house and you freak out and run out, scream and run outside, you know, this is the same thing as like the uh, the rotten little neighborhood kid taking the bag of uh, dog excrement, putting it on your front porch and lighting it on fire and then waiting for a reaction. It's the same thing. They just can't light the bag on fire, so they're finding other ways to do things like that. Yeah, it's like Dennis the Menace, Dennis the Menace, and what is it, Mister Wilson? <laughs> it's like, yeah, just pranking. yeah, exactly. And you know, I have a friend up in Alaska that was telling me about what they were doing around the property that they were on up there, and they were just right out in the middle of nowhere in the Alaska Triangle, and they knew they had a troop of them right up next to the house, and they would like you know knock over the wood pile. Uh huh. Human has to come out and pick up the wood pile again. That's funny. Let's watch him pick up the wood pile. Um, you know, the house has like no trees within like 50 feet of it. Yeah, there would be like big tree branches on the roof. You know, where did those come from? Yeah, ha ha. The humans got to climb up and get the tree branches off the roof. Um, a caveman down in New Mexico who has them all over his property way too often reports that they like to like move his tools around. They'll take his tools and hide them for a couple of days and then they'll bring them back and leave them somewhere else or something. Um, he was underneath his car, working on the car in the middle of the night. One of them actually grabbed him by the ankle and yanked him about six inches and scared the living heck wow. out of him. You know, and that's, that brings up an interesting point is is just because they're doing these things doesn't mean they're being nefarious, right? It doesn't mean that they have ill intent necessarily. Um, it might seem that way, but like you said, ha, 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 the human has to come out and pick up the wood pile, ha, ha, ha. Um, the, the things, the human's going to come out on the porch and, and yell at me. That's really funny. And, uh, yeah. you know, just get a rise out of people. That's pretty interesting behavior if you really take, if you look at it, look at it from that perspective. Well, and the other thing is, you know, we've had a chance to actually like verify that. And by that, I mean, I have people contact me often enough to have these weird things going on around where they live and ask me what I think about it. And generally, it's something, it's not usually an aggressive thing. It's usually something like this, where they think it's funny. And I always try and tell them, you know, unless it's overtly aggressive, the best way you can deal with it is pretend it's not happening and just ignore them. And if they don't get any reaction out of you, they'll get bored and they'll give up. And virtually every time, that's been exactly what happened. As soon as the humans started acting like they weren't there and quit paying attention to them, they lost interest in doing it. Yeah, that's that's very telling. Um, the the curiosity aspect, you know, I was thinking about how 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 attractive would you know a bike with the handlebar bars upside down and buried in the ground be to them? You know, they'd probably be so tempted to go up and and figure this thing out and make the wheels spin and what you know what is this thing? Now, there's something weird about bicycles with them, too. Wes had a report on Sasquatch Chronicles where a poor kid had been, like, assaulted in the middle of the night. I don't know if it was a noise. His bike was making some kind of squeaking or something, but it basically, like, grabbed the wheel. He went flying over the handlebars and then picked the bike up, flopped it up into a treetop. 
And after, <laughs> after this, I started, like, I followed it away in my memory and went, okay, that's pretty weird. And I, I've encountered three different reports since then of people finding entire bicycles, like, 30 or 40 feet up a tree. Uh, don't ask me what that's all about. I have not got a clue. But it's pretty weird. Well, that's that's some massive strength, too. I mean, I could probably fo- throw a bike, like, 10 feet max. <laughs> yeah. yeah, unless you're like a world boss, uh, you know, caber tosser or something. I don't think you get it much further than that. Even the lighter bikes, they're just not uh, aerodynamic. It'd be pretty hard to throw it up in the air and get it, you know, about 10, 15 feet up. Yeah, it's like, it's like those hammer throwers from uh, the Olympics. You know, they do a big old, big old spin and wind up before they're chucking that heavy object. Yep. And actually, I sort of used to do that, so I know exactly how that works. And yeah, for a human to throw a full-size bicycle 30, 40 feet up in the tree would be very, very difficult to accomplish. You wouldn't expect to see that very often, and especially not out in the middle of the woods where there aren't even any bike paths. Yeah, um, and I've also heard of uh, the fascination that they have with uh, mylar, like mylar balloons, and mm-hmm. sh- just anything that's shiny that's kind of going to catch their attention. I also wonder sometimes if some of the, um, if they're interested by some of the synthetic fabrics, because it seems like when they come up and play around with tents and stuff, they always like to run their fingers across it. And that's not like enough to really make enough noise to scare anybody or anything like that, other than, you know, so I just think they're interested in what it is and what it feels like, why we're bothering to be inside of it. Like, is this going to protect them somehow? <laughs> they're not quite sure what the concept is because they're impervious to cold and, you know, bugs aren't going to bite through their skin, so they don't quite get the concept of why we need all the shelter all the time. Yeah. And and they seem very very almost overtly click, uh, overtly curious um, to the point mm-hmm. where they they have to come in, investigate. They're really just curious creatures by nature, um, and that kind of reminds. Yeah. Me, well, you know, and it just that speaks to their intelligence too. If they were, you know, just big dumb apes or something, you wouldn't expect them to be quite as curious as they actually come across as being in report after report after report after report. Right. And it was a, I don't know, I think it was four or five months ago, you had Timothy Renner on, uh, on your show. And, and I own all his books. And it, in one of his books, um, it talks about, you know, there's a lot of the reports that he brings up in his books. Um, he refers to them as wild men. Um, the news article does anyway. And there were some that claimed to have witnessed a a large, hairy, bipedal, wild man, creature, Bigfoot, whatever you want to call it, actually wearing clothes. Is, uh-huh. Have you heard that before, or is this an isolated... Um, I've heard of it like two or three times. Um, the uh, 50 Years of Bigfoot story, her uh, grandpa in the story actually gave the alpha male in the troop that he was friends with... Uh, clothes and he couldn't really fit into these gigantic uh, overalls that he had very well and didn't want to wear them but he did have a white shirt that was like you know quintuple XL or something like that and he likes that and he wore it until it fell apart to nothing but just the collar still hanging around his neck um, I heard Cat had another report where and man we have no idea what was behind this really weird report but it was a guy at a forestry station 
and he heard a really loud knock on the door. He went over and he opened the door, and he swears up and down there was a Bigfoot standing there, again with, like, blue overalls on. He looked like the Hulk because they were all ripped up because they didn't fit him. And he said, food, stuck his hand out. And the guy was so shocked, he didn't know what else to do. He just reacted, and he grabbed off of the table right next to him where they had a whole bunch of candy bars for, you know, like somebody's got hypothermia, they're starving, whatever, here, eat a candy bar. And he threw a handful of candy bars into his hand and just slammed the door shut. Oh, my gosh. He shot for a few minutes, <laughs> and then when he opened the door, it was back again. And wow. uh, so, uh, it's yeah, like, again, trick, we had no idea what was going on there. Yeah, no kidding. That's some trick or treat. But uh, it was probably I just about had a heart attack. He never he never mentioned it to anybody for years, and finally uh, managed to track her down and went. You know, nobody else would believe this story. I got to tell you this. You know, he told her the story, and That's just, fascinating, uh, I wish I could though. give you more information on why this thing would be actually wearing overalls because they don't need to. They don't need clothes, and I don't know why. He, maybe he figured if you put this on, you think he's a human and he can food. <laughs> yeah, and, you know. Oh uh, God knows what they're thinking. No, that's really interesting, though. The fact that they they know what to do with the clothes. Like, obviously, they yeah. You know, well, you, know, well, you know, for me, fifty years of Bigfoot said that the Alpha, as much as they see us wearing them all the time, they don't know how to get into them. So Grandpa had to show them how to step into the legs and pull the overalls up and everything. And, he didn't really want to do it, and then when he did try it, they didn't seem to look, fit him very good. He just kind of abandoned the whole thing. But he liked the idea of a shirt, apparently. For some reason, it <laughs> wasn't too bad, and he liked that. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of hilarious because you got this huge alpha that's got this white shirt on. It's like, you know, it's a good thing that you just kind of let everybody else do all the walking around and looking at stuff because you'd stand on like a friggin' sword on walking around like, with that thing on. Anybody would see you, you know? Which tells you, again, this is a good example of how big ones manage to just, like, they don't move around a whole lot unless they have to. They sort of, you know, stand thicker cover and let the littler ones run around and do all the recon and gathering and that sort of stuff. And then they come out when it's time to uh, squash some big game animal that they want to eat. Well, and that, that also uh, lends credence to their, you know, co- communication patterns to each other. <laughs> I mean, is it, yeah. you know, the whistles, the knocks, the the whoops, you know, there's there's different patterns yep. that they have that they've got, they've got to know from a distance kind of what's, what's coming, what's up. They have their own surveillance system. Yeah, and apparently they're excellent mimics. They, you know, can learn a smattering of our language just from listening to us, you know, talking it camp outs and stuff like that after long enough they'll start figuring out what certain words mean or that uh so-and-so is named you know jen or something because they hear people say her name and then she turns and looks at them and they go okay that's your name then they'll sit out in the woods and say that name and you know scare the living hell out of the bird <laughs> some big thing on the woods going good <laughs> yeah, say it's a monster. You know, that's big for scaring you because you just learned your name and you think it's funny oh you're scared ha <laughs> That's hilarious. I, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so there's so many there's so much good material just off of of that idea alone. I mean, you think about how many directions you could take that for for an entertaining movie. Well, the other direction that it goes would be incredibly creepy, and you hear about that a lot with the Type Four uh, carnivorous uh, subpolar Wendigo variety. Which are pretty good at mimicking uh, voices, also, and also good at figuring out what people's names are. And they use this technique to lure people to their death. 
like they'll mimic your friend's voice like I'm hurt help me until you come over to see and then oh they kill you yeah that leads me to uh, a next question I'd like you to kind of answer um, you, you've kind of got those different varieties the different types and I don't know if you could for our audience just kind of walk us through the different types one two three four and what you know different characteristics they have and and what sets them apart from each other okay well this is a tall order because uh first of all i want everybody to keep in mind that this is not a scientific nomenclature that is designated as um 100 percent one to use because nobody has such a thing there's several researchers that decided that there actually are more than one variety based on all the evidence out there and it seems to be pretty clear and uh, they've all got their own little systems for classifying things. Some people actually try and classify dogmat as part of the subset of Bigfoot, which I think is ridiculous. Upright canines are, are obviously not common at Anthropoid. They don't belong in the group. Um, so, and then other people throw in, like, some of the little people or something like that, or they just number them a little bit differently. But for my um, purposes, a, a basic four types, there might be some other ones that are sub-varieties of them, or they might even be in their own distinct variety, but they're so limited in range and numbers that I haven't bothered with them, really, the four basic types. So first of all, type one would be patterson Gimlin, patty type big shit. Um, the, you know, they range between, like, barrel-shaped and V-shaped, depending on if they're, you know, males or whatever. Um, some of the uh, males tend to be barrel-shaped, too, apparently, if they eat a lot. And you get the ones that are really muscular and, you know, like super bodybuilders and stuff like that. They all have a basically kind of a human-looking face, not much of a forehead. They're mobile with a sagittal crest, a point on top of their head. They all that hair all over them. The uh, face is mostly covered except around the eyes and the mouth with hair, and uh, they're, for the most part, shy, retiring, and pretty much will leave you alone if you leave them alone, although some of them can get territorial, and some of them can, on occasion, be dangerous. Type 2s live more in the south. They tend to be not quite as big. Um, some of them have longer hair. Some of them have shorter hair. Now, any of these come in just about any color you can imagine, so color really is an average. Um the ones in the south, like I said, those are the ones they would call like the uh, southern wood booger types. You generally don't hear about them having sagittal crest. They have a more round head. They look less human and more like a chimpanzee. And they seem to um, be in larger units. No, I don't live in the south, so I have to rely on what other researchers down there have been telling me. But they're saying that the troop size is a little bit bigger. They tend to be more vocal. If you've got them in an area, you're more likely to hear them make calls and hoots and roars and weird noises like that at night. And uh, they're also like, they're the ones that tend to be the tricksters. They like messing around with people. They think it's funny. And they also can be more aggressive than type ones and basically more dangerous to deal with. So um, not really, not hostile and aggressive per se, but a larger percentage of more aggressive behavior. And of course, you know, some that are dangerous and will just kill people. But I just tell everybody that any of the, the first two classes of Bigfoot are human beings. That, you know, most human beings are peaceful and nice to each other and get along pretty well. And you have some 
you know, it being uh, types or <laughs> the, the other people or, you know, crazy psycho mass killers that don't like anybody and if they get the chance to kill somebody and get away with it, they'll do it. Um, you know, if they were real creatures, which they are, you would expect that there would be apparent behavior occasionally in the group, which there is. So you get these ones that are aggressively dangerous. You don't know what you're going to run into. You always got to be careful. Third ones are rare, um, especially in the lower 48. There is some down here in some areas, but they're not really widespread. Yet, thankfully, these are what uh, Cat Hansen would call face eaters. The uh, Micmac Confederation over on the Upper East Coast called them the Dugwee. The uh, northern Minnesota tribes called them the Tugwee. Up in Canada, they're called the Bear Man. And they sort of look like a Bigfoot cross with a baboon. They've got a snout on them. They've got a lot bigger um, eye teeth fangs on them, like three, four inches. And, uh, you know, the rest, of the, the rest of their teeth seem to be more made for meat eating. Um, you know, the reason they're called face eaters, I don't really think I want to go into that very much. It's um, it's pretty gruesome. I'll leave it to your imagination. But they, uh, they smell really bad. They stink. They smell like rotting meat. Part of the reason is, is because they are... Um, scavengers. If there's like corpses of dead animals lying on the side of the road rotting for three or four days, they don't care. They'll, they'll eat it. In fact, if that's the sign that they're in the area, if you got that kind of stuff laying on the side of the road and it starts disappearing on the weekends when you know the road crew ain't showing up scooping it up, you should get suspicious. Something's doing it. And uh, also, when people see um, Bigfoot messing around by graveyards and stuff, um, sometimes it's actually these, in fact, most of the time it's probably these bitters because if they have an opportunity to, you know, dig up a grave and eat something, they'll do it. Um, so that's another creepy side effect of these things. But they're pack hunters. They're um, largely carnivorous, especially in the winter. They tend to be in a more northerly climate where there's a more winter, so you're going to have to eat more, um, you know, more meat than plant matter because you know keep in mind if you're if you're up north of the border very far during the winter what's available plant-wise to eat requires that you be in humbling with a double or quadruple stomach in order to digest it because it's all this really tough fibrous plant material that normally you wouldn't be able to eat even if you really would have trouble with it so a lot of these guys are going to be if they're living up in that climate accommodating the fact that they're going to be eating meat most of the year uh, this is especially true of the type 4, which is almost never seen in the lower 48, and I like to say it's mostly Canada's problem. They seem to like the cold. Uh, you don't tend to see them in warm climates ever. Um, there's a sub-variety in the, in the, uh, along the mountain chains in the eastern U.S. that are referred to as the Junosco because the name here requires confederations using them, and that a couple of the tribes had... Um, crossover. They had descriptions of this thing that matched exactly with the descriptions of what the northern tribes are calling the Wendigo. And contrary to the um, propaganda that Algernon Blackwood, um, French fur trappers and loggers came out with, if you go back far enough and look at what the actual information on it was before they added all these layers of super, supernatural superstition and horror to it, there wasn't really anything supernatural at all about this critter. Um, I think it was uh, Father Guinard in his book, uh, Amongst the Tech de Bolay, he was talking to the, the natives about this, and 
I recall, this was like in the late 1700s or early 1800s, so way back there, um, before there had been much colonization or any chance for any of these, um, you know, reports and legends of this to be misconstrued in some way. And he said that their description of the Wendigo was it was a giant savage that went naked in the bush, was completely insensible to changes and variations in temperature, had hair all over its body, um, didn't use fire or any tools, and ate Indians. And that's it. There was no supernatural anything connected to it. So really what he's describing is another type of bifurcus that's carnivorous. And if you look at the old legends of all the tribes in this area, it seems to um, hold true because if they had these things in an area, they would just move out of the area or they'd try and have wars and kill them. Um, there was no living in the same area with them, which is completely different than what you find over in the Pacific Northwest where they had the type ones. And some tribes would even allow men to, you know, like females, uh, women that wanted to, could actually marry a Bigfoot. It was okay. You could go live with a Bigfoot and have a Bigfoot for your husband. And they could trade with them and trade fish with them and, you know, whatever else. And, um, you know, there was interaction with them. They were sort of, you know, peaceful terms. You guys leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Over on the East Coast, you got just the opposite, where they're having wars with these damn things, trying to exterminate each other. Um, so that again tells me he ain't looking at the same variety of Bigfoot over there. And plus, the fact that I actually saw one when I was ten years old—that pretty much adds the, uh, the cherry on top of the icing for that one. That thing didn't look anything like Patty. That's not like normal Bigfoot. They got teeth like the, more like a shark. Anything else you could think of, it doesn't even look like something that belongs in a hominid ape like creature's mouth. Wow, well, that's uh, that's a good rundown. I really appreciate that. That, that helps me just kind of differentiate that, differentiate those different things. Um, you know, there's different um sketches and different um computer mock ups of these different types. Um, um, Pete Travers, we've had him on our show. Um, he's he's done a few sketches for bfro and has some he has some uh you know conceptual drawings and some of those kind of do fit those different face shapes and things like that um and then there's another one um what was that called is it satanfudge.com such a funny oh yeah he's got some really Slosser, yeah he actually did an excellent mock-up of my uh, wendigo encounter i think it's number 52 or 53 something like that cool that's really cool. Well, it's interesting also that you you mentioned the Indian legends, um, and that's you know that's part of why we that's part of why we picked the name that we did for our show, Lost River Legends, because um, we know that there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of you know native history, and um, you know before them, who who knows? But um, we know that they have um, these legends that get passed down from uh, family to family, and uh, that tribal knowledge that they've kept and preserved, it there's a lot to it, right? Um, over the years, yeah. they have ways of, you know, naming di- different animals and having those relationships with, with the, you know, e- the eagle and the, the bear, and they know about those different animals as a very factual basis. But um, when it comes to Sasquatch, that they have their own legend and their own story surrounding that. Do you have uh, some of those legends that you could share with us? Well, you know, as far as that goes, um, 
every tribe that I know of in North America has legends of Bigfoot. And that includes all the way up to the Eskimo and Alaska. We call it the Tornet. Excuse me. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of legends on that. The only problem with it is is that you have to actually find somebody that knows the specific native folklore from that tribe that's willing to tell you about it. And generally, they're not that willing to share it with a crabby white man that's going to ridicule them. So, uh, you know, it's tough to get the legends out of them in the first place. One thing I'll tell you that's interesting that we're starting to do research on, and you might want to watch out for it around this area, is why are the Bigfoot in some areas historically very aggressive and in other areas not so much so? And it becomes even more clear that this is going on when you're talking about areas like we were just mentioning earlier in the show, where you have the border of Montana, the Bitterroot Mountains. All the Bigfoot sightings in there are like, these things are dangerous. They kill people, leave the area. And then you go across the valley over to the mountains in Idaho, and it's just the opposite. They're not dangerous, so mostly they'll just avoid you, and you don't really have to worry about it. So, um, you know, what's the difference? And then we started looking at other areas of Montana. Just western Montana has most of the Bigfoot sightings because it's most of the forested mountainous region. Eastern Montana is all high plains, so there's not much out there. Um, but in that that area and in the Idaho and even into Wyoming, if you look at the areas, and Kelly Shaw from Rocky Mountain Sasquatch has also noticed this, that southwest Montana has a lot of aggressive Bigfoot sightings, including attacks and people going disappearing and people being hurt or killed by them, which, you know, of course, people like to cover that one up. Uh, we've had a gentleman named Don Stoner who was back riding into Missoula in 1882. I had one of jump on him and his horse and attack five miles outside of town. So it goes back that far right here. Um, the areas north of here, you go up in the Black, Blackhead Valley and stuff, and around that area, there's Bigfoot reports, but they're never aggressive. So what's the difference? Well, we started looking into this, that this actually goes back to before the white men were around here and the native legends themselves, because you talk to the local tribes and what's your take on Bigfoot. And they all have a little, you know, they all say it's a real thing, but they all have a little bit different take on it. And then you start noticing that the tribes that like to war with each other a lot and were really aggressive said the Bigfoot around their areas were really aggressive and would kill them. And it's interesting to note that most of the areas where we get these, you know, historically aggressive encounter after aggressive encounter seem to be the same areas where there was aggressive hostile tribes living originally. So that's an interesting correlation, uh, Duke, on on why those creatures were were being so um, violent uh, towards humans. Um, I... You know, I've, I've thought about this myself because it seems like there's encounters that are very violent, uh, very scary, where people go missing, they're killed um, or maimed, and, and these these creatures are just just the display of strength and the display of 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 anger is just off the charts. Do you think? Yeah. You know, I've heard multiple reports. Um, one of them was on uh, Sasquatch Chronicles, where Wes had this. Uh, I think it was called like the death deathbed confession or something, where this gentleman had uh, confessed uh, to some missionary type people that there that he used to hunt these creatures as part of a government agency, 
and uh, mm-hmm. and he would report that he would you know they would go out with these groups of of, of different hunters, and then that he would hunt these creatures uh, from a helicopter, no less. So part of me is like, well, if if that's all these creatures know in some of these areas that they're going to be hunted by some government agency, of course they're going to have a a sordid <laughs> hatred uh, of humans. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, I mean that's that's really recent, so that doesn't explain you know centuries of aggression in certain areas that we've got. You know, that's just the recent government. They haven't had the technology for helicopter hunting bigfoot for a long time. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, yeah, if you're, but I think a lot of that that's happening, it isn't that they're trying to collect type specimens, it's that bigfoot are becoming a problem. They're either getting too friendly and the local humans are all seeing them, or they're like actually aggressively causing problems for humans, killing livestock, you know, making people disappear or something like that. At that case, they have to send in the cavalry and get rid of the bothersome bigfoot. So that, you know, it doesn't become some sort of an actual news report or something. God forbid that should happen. So I definitely think that sort of thing is going on in certain situations. But again, I lean away from that being, you know, before we had the air cover to do anything like that, we're pitiful on the ground. You can put hundreds of people in the forest and they can easily elude us. So that's not going to work with that, you know what, until you actually have that air cover. So, I mean, recently, yeah, there could be certain areas where they're getting pressured from, you know, government agencies coming in and dealing with the aggressive ones, and, you know, they're reacting to that. But I think in a lot of cases, it's just observation. You know, like, we are Bigfoot's TV. They don't have a TV or a Nintendo. So when they get bored, they go watch humans, because humans are interesting. We do stupid things. We're fun to watch. And, you know, they'll sit, they'll make little lines by trails that humans walk on just so they can sit there and watch us walk past and see what we're doing. Um, so that sort of observation, I'm sure they were doing that back when the white man wasn't around and it was just the native tribes. And if what they were seeing was the native tribes warring and killing with each other, they probably didn't want to interact with them, figuring they were going to get the same kind of treatment. And when they got too close, you know, they're afraid for their safety, so they're going to react very hostile and get rid of these damn dangerous humans that kill each other all the time. Um, you know, so to me, that just seems like, a, you know, after a long, long time of dealing with the locals that were basically hostile and aggressive even toward each other, they would just develop that attitude that all humans are hostile and aggressive. I don't know the difference. Every trip seems to all look the same to me sort of thing. Um, you know, no difference between different tribes and different kinds of humans and stuff. You're all just humans. You're all aggressive not to be trusted. And, you know, how long does it take for that to become ingrained in the local Bigfoot population where humans are aggressive and dangerous and not to be trusted to run them out of your territory? Right. It comes down to how, how much of that is ingrained in, in their um, instinct and their evolution. And then along with... Well, hey, they have a language or some way of passing it down. Yeah, well, we know they have a language, and they right. definitely can communicate to each other. Hey, when I was a kid, you know, one of those humans shot me in the butt with an arrow, and it hurt. <laughs> Don't trust them. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it doesn't take that much communication skill to get that kind of point across. And if it happens a few times, and we see examples of it, you know, one of us popped out of a field uh, in a clearing for a second to look at the humans, and they all shot arrows at me. Damn, they're aggressive. Well, that's just the attitude they're going to have. You know, all humans are aggressive. Well, and going back to the um, 
the government involvement of of maybe possibly removing some of these. I mean, we get, I think there was a, a bear attack up uh, in the Grand Teton area. That's just around the corner for us. Um, and it was supposedly a, gri- a grizzly attack, uh, two guys out on an elk hunt. And uh, one of them didn't make it. The other guy made it out of there. But then, um, of course, the reaction is, well, we got to go find the bear and, and kill it. Well, yeah. how do they know that's the bear that did the deed? You know, if that, you know, or is that... Yeah, unless it's a part of them and you can examine the stomach contents and you have to right. digest it, you don't know. Right. Unless they're uh, pulling a red riding hood and, and cutting the, the stomach open on the spot with the, the hunter's axe, right? Yeah, or you got a perfect track of it that's got, you know... You can cast and then compare to the bear after you shoot him to make sure it takes the foot. And then what if it doesn't? Oh, this one was innocent. Sorry, we shot innocent Bidley. Let's go get the other one. Uh, you know, they have dilemmas like that. We had some similar here a couple years ago, a rattlesnake, which borders right on the edge of Missoula, and there's too many mountain lions. One of them jumped over a six-foot um, chain-link fence and went after a teenage kid in his own backyard. He ran into the house barely in, uh, ahead of it. And so, you know, they sent out the, the game people to deal with the situation, and they just went up into the rattlesnake, and the first five or six mountain lions they found, they just shot them. They didn't know which did it. Yeah, that's pretty messed up, in my opinion. That's, you know, and it, it makes people feel better, right? The public opinion gets pretty strong. You, you get these people in the yeah. news, and and you worry about all the other kids out there, and pretty soon these agencies got to do something about it so they just go start blasting and that's not always uh well, effective or 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 smart yeah the easy solution is to get bigfoot to make a buffer zone between the the town and where the other dangerous <laughs> and i'm only halfway kidding here because actually i'm on the south side of town right next to us is patty canyon which i do research in there's <laughs> bigfoot are up there year-round uh, three miles away from here is the other side of town, the rattlesnake, where there's mountain lions and there's grizzly bears. Plenty of them. It's dangerous to even, I don't even do research there. It's dangerous to go in there. Uh, but I go right up here in Patty Canyon, do research all the time. It's 30, 35,000 acres. It borders on the 2 million plus acre Lolo National Forest. <clears throat> so plenty of other places to go. Point here being that three miles away, we have all kinds of mountain lions and grizzlies and stuff. But here in Patty Canyon, there's never any. There's no mountain lion tracks. There's no bear tracks. There's no scat. There's no sign of them ever being up there. What's the difference? Well, they find Bigfoot being there. That's what the difference is. Yeah. Bears and mountain lions can smell Bigfoot. And they're not suicidal. They're not coming into an area yeah. where Bigfoot will live because they know what's going to happen. Yep. They, they know who the apex predator is in that environment. Yeah, when that 1,200-pound alpha grabs you and slams you into a tree, you're dead. And they know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and their feats of strength, I mean, they, they surpass even the feats of strength of, of bears in, in many instances. And bears are incredibly strong and incredibly fast and agile and yada, yada, yada. But even these Sasquatch, I mean, they have some serious um, strength, which just it boggles my mind. Yeah, we used to be, <laughs> we certainly seen some examples of that earlier this year when I was up by Libby and uh, that area up there in the yak. We found a tree about maybe 30, 40 feet off the road, and it was a good 10, 12 inches in diameter. 
and uh, about two and a half feet off the ground, it had been snapped off. And I mean, twist snapped off, and the tree was gone. Something literally twist snapped the tree off and walked off with it. Yeah, that's that's not normal. <laughs> that's not. Yeah. That's something a human does. <laughs> oh, good lord. I mean, that's not even do with heavy equipment, you know? <laughs> you have to have special projections to do that sort of thing. And they're made to cut the tree, not twist it until it snaps. And then, you know, where'd the tree go? The tree's gone. There's no sign that it never hit the ground. But there was all these little spindly twig-like bushes that were all the way around this rift of stump. And none of them had been damaged in any way. If this thing had actually fallen, it would have taken them all. They were perfectly intact. So whatever twist snapped this tree off just walked off with it, which made us want to leave the area pretty fast. And then I get up into the uh, Hidden Valley and up into the Skalkaho area here in the Sapphire Mountains. And last time we were up there, we found a new upstructure that they said to replace their old one, which got apparently knocked down when a dead tree fell down and took off one side of it. About a quarter mile further down the river, they set up a new one, which is about the same size as the old one, which is to say about 60 feet tall east side of the edge, made out of an entire lodgepole time that was moved in position. So we're talking about like 6,000 pounds of people, like three tons for each one of these lodgepole pines. Now, you tell me what can pick that up and move it around. These weren't pushed over. They were moved there. Yeah, that's, that's completely fascinating. And, and you're not going to get heavy equipment back there. Obviously, you know, there, there's yeah, well, there was no road to get back there. This was, you know, a, a river, you know, uh, chest deep, 10 feet across, an embankment on both sides, and no road going to it. <laughs> Unless you're doing it with a helicopter, you couldn't do it. Yeah, and that's got to be one of the biggest tree structures I've ever heard of. I mean, in, in not only weight, uh, but size, and I mean, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, we're, this has been like three years now that we've been finding these ridiculously big structures in this one area. And it's like, frankly, it's scary. Because I'm used to finding big tracks, and I'm used to finding tree structures and stuff. But when you start finding stuff that big, you really start wondering what's doing it, and is even Bigfoot strong enough to do this? Um, and, you know, that's the point where it starts getting pretty scary. And yet, <laughs> there's an even scarier part. Uh, um, Richard Williams, who had discovered the first X up there three years back, was named it Williams X, rightfully so. And now I just found this new X, and I call it Duke's X or Sullivan X or whatever. I found it. Um, we couldn't get across the river to take a look at it because it was too late there. And you see, this river's icy cold. If you wait across it, you can't dry out, warm up right in the right away. You're going to get hypothermia and die. So we couldn't risk going across it, but. It looked, from where we could see, getting as close to the bank as we couldn't take a look across from it, like there's actually another X structure back in the tree line behind it that's even bigger because you can see the tops poking up above the regular trees. Oh, God. So we need to get back there and document that and see if that is something else that was actually moved into position and try and get better measurements on it and stuff because it's just... It's terrifying. It's really terrifying. They, you find something like this, you go over there and see that, you know, these aren't trees that were pushed over. They were moved here by something. And like the hair on the back of your neck stands up, and you just want to leave right away. You don't want to stand there and go, hey, take a picture with me. You're just like, no, I'll leave right now. I could, I could imagine. And, um, you know, is there something to the, sh the shape of these? Um, is there something to the shape of... You know, if it's an X pattern, do you think that it means something 
do not enter or we've kicked you out of the troop or is there something to that? Yeah. We don't know for sure. We think that X structures are just territorial markers and they basically um they're they're showing each other whose territory it is. And there's you know, one theory is that each you know, each member of the troop may actually make their own little axes or something, whatever size they want, depending on how big they are, so you'll find all different size ones. But the alpha will make the biggest one that he can in the area to show how big he is. Bigger the axe is, you know, and alpha is making it by himself. Nobody's helping him. So if the axe is really big and gigantic, there's you know, this tells the other big foot that are coming into the area, Hey, I built this axe and I'm really big because look how big it is. You sure you want to come in this area? So that's you know best guess at this point. I've got to find out the last of it claims that that is what they're for, and and even further claims that if they put a lemur on one side, that that's actually a warning to humans to stay out of their territory, and you're supposed to stay on the leaner side of the X structure and don't go on the other side of it. Yeah, I'd I'd imagine being able to recognize that and kind of abide by it would be actually a really good idea. <laughs> You know, what's interesting to me is that Kevin remembers that when he was with Black a couple different times, and one time in particular, they were going across a meadow, and he got over to the far side of the meadow, and, and Black suddenly decided that he wanted to turn around, didn't want to go any further. And Kevin looked at the tree line, and the only thing he noticed out of place is that there was a big X right at the edge of the tree line. Yeah, so there's there's something to it, you know. There's it's interesting yeah. that but see at this time he had no idea about tree structures or anything, or that Bigfoot made them. That was just the only thing he could notice that was out of place. Is there was this weird looking X there, and why did Greg want to turn around and leave again? And he didn't explain anything to Kevin. Right, right. But you've got you've got all these different, um, you know, pieces of the puzzle. You know, all these different anecdotal experiences that people have, and then you you can overlay it and get kind of the bigger picture there yep yeah it's a lot of fun you know the other thing that i enjoy is that there's actually a bunch of field researchers that stay in contact with me and when they got questions they get a hold of me and sometimes i have an idea and other times it's just like yeah well the, the data seems to point in this direction try this you know and it's really fun because you can get three or four people in completely different trains in different parts of the continent going out and trying to check out some the same thing in the field and see if it holds up. And if they all start coming up with, yeah, that's that's what I'm finding too. It's like, wow, we got another part of the puzzle here that we can at least say, you know, this might be the case with this situation because we've actually had four or five different field researchers in different parts of the continent try this, and they all came up with the same result. You know, that's a scientific method. Have a theory, get out there and test it. Exactly. Yeah, hypothesize. I think it's this. Why don't you guys try the same thing? Exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, as long as we're going to be stuck being citizen scientists and having to do this ourselves, um, you know, let's use their own methodology so they have less to complain about. When they're finally forced to admit that it's actually real, we'll just hand them a huge pile of information. Go here, you're done. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean... There's mountains and mountains of evidence um, when it comes to, you know, the tracks, the trees, the, you know, the scat, the encounters, the sounds, the sound recordings. Um, we've got hair, hair follicles, things like that. So it's it's quite a bit to really go off of. 
Yeah, you know, a lot of, I always enjoy that when I hear somebody going, well, there's no evidence for Bigfoot. Well, I know that's your mantra that your favorite guys like to say, and you like to regurgitate it, but that doesn't mean it's true. In fact, there's tons of evidence for Bigfoot, and you haven't looked at it. Um, Matt just recently did one of his little segments on that, the evidence for Bigfoot, which is longer than usual. I think it was around 18, 20 minutes. But as usual, he did a great job of breaking everything down, going A, B, C, D, you know, here's the evidence for this, here's the evidence for this, here's the evidence for this, here's the evidence we have like a hundred times more evidence than we need to prove this in court. Could we actually get it in there as a case? Um, you know, like who, who's, who's, who vocal, you know, whose evidence do you want to hear? Uh, you don't consider the showability that's moonshine to be a very good witness. Okay. How about a cop? How about dozens of cops? How about judges? Who's the, you know, who, who do you consider to be a valid witness? Cause we can produce them. Forestry people, we can produce them. What level of evidence do you, do you need? You know, it's just they're just being intractable because it doesn't fit with their preconceived notions and their godmen, not real scientists, and that's the bottom line. Yeah, we we hear that a lot on Sasquatch Chronicles with Wes. I mean, he's 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 nearing uh, nearing his five hundredth show here pretty soon, and he's he's saying that regularly. Hey, I I have all types of witnesses uh, just on my show not not talking about any other show but just on his show i mean he's got mountains of you know i I don't know how many evidence how many witnesses that he's he's um you know he's done so many shows but sometimes he has several um encounters per show guests per show so he's he's got he's sitting on probably thousands uh, of these people and they have a varying um, backgrounds. I mean, yeah. from professional. The other to... thing you're not. Now I know Wes, and he actually probably hears six encounters for each one he actually records and puts on the radio. Because a lot of people will tell him their encounters, and they don't want to be on the radio. So, you know, even if he only had one guest per episode, which he does sometimes, but sometimes it's more than one. One times five hundred times six. How many is that? It's quite a bit. So there's at least 3,000 reports that he's heard. It's probably considerably more than that. It's just the ones that Wes has heard. Well, then you've got um, the curated ones on BFRO. You've got several yep. several other outlets where people want to report. Um, you've got uh, RMSOs doing some, some great stuff here in this area. So got- yeah, I'm a big fan of Kelly Shaw. I have him on my show at some point. I keep pastoring him, but he doesn't like to do radio shows. Well, I, I'd, I'd like to do the same. Um, I think he'd he'd probably be a good guy to go out with in our, our neck of the woods because he's, he's covering quite a bit of range, but um, a, lot, yeah. a lot of the places that he's been are right in our backyard. Pretty accessible. Um, and he seems to be a pretty good tracker, so I can trust that. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. You know, and that's another thing that always throws me is everybody's like, there's no evidence for Bigfoot. You might have heard of uh, Utah Sasquatch for the uh, Project Go and See. We encouraged everybody to go out in their own little area, use these techniques, see if they could find Bigfoot evidence. And I sort of did the same or similar thing this summer without actually announcing it. I just kind of jokingly referred to it as uh, Project Put Up or Shut Up where I basically threw the gates open and said, anybody that wants to go squash you know, doesn't matter if you've never been squashing before. It doesn't matter if you're a super expert. I don't care if you're from Iceland. I don't care where you're from. 
if you got the wherewithal to show up, I'll take you out splotching. Okay? So I did that a bunch of times this summer. Um, so if I was completely full of it, like, that's pretty much asking for it, right? And every single one of these people came away completely convinced. Several of them now have learned enough about the situation that they can go out and do their own Bigfoot research and not by themselves finding tree structures and tracks, okay? So, you know, it's one thing to talk about this, but when you can take somebody that doesn't know anything about Bigfoot out into the woods and go, okay, well, let's go find some evidence and just pot them around. Uh, you know, the best example of that was probably Michael. We had one hour. We went up to Deep Creek, which is about you know, 10 miles away from here, and you know, shortly before dark. Got no more than 100 feet off of the road, probably, and found like two or three knuckle prints, a couple footprints, some tree structures, a bunch of overturned rocks, da 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 da, one hour. Ooh, it's so hard to find Bigfoot evidence. And he found the knuckle prints. This is the first time he ever went squashing. I was just telling him, well, make sure you look this area right here that's been disturbed, look over here, and start finding stuff himself. Yeah, it's, it's, sounds like it's a little, a little less difficult than an Easter egg hunt out there, out that way. Yeah, yeah, actually, I, when I had Rich Soul on here, and he used to be a member of the BFRO, um, great guy. He's got two books out on tree structures, which is like what anybody else on earth has. And, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we kind of got on that subject and went, well, you know, finding Bigfoot, 10 years, uh, finding Bigfoot. And he just starts laughing and he goes, seriously, guys, it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think was, they were too serious about finding Bigfoot. They were serious about staying on the air and teasing people, but they weren't too serious about finding Bigfoot. Because, uh, you know, I can take a couple people that don't know a whole lot and maybe like one that's a uh, pretty good squatcher with me go out for a weekend and practically find more of it than they did in any given season. Well, I think uh, Brett and I will have to take you up on that this spring because you're just... Well, heck yeah, come on over. You're There's no third places to work. You're, you're a quick jaunt uh, from us. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the other things we'd like to do is connect with the uh, Utah Sasquatch. Um, he's, he's, his methodology of using the Northern Ridge and, and trying to look along the military crest of a uh, mountain, I find that fascinating. I think that'd be awesome yeah. to get down there and visit him and uh, learn to employ some of those techniques here in, in, in our own area as well. Well, I'll, I'll say some things for him that, you know, he hasn't been in it as long as I have, but he got a lot of stuff right real fast. Like, they're uh, liking the uh, northeast side of mountains during the, the summer and the southeast side during winter. And that does seem to hold true. Um, and it's just because of the temperature. Because, you know, northeast side will be shady most of the day in the summer when they want to cool. And southeast side will be sunny most of the time in the summer when they want to warm up, or winter when they want to warm up. And also tends to melt the snow off of the faster, so there's less snow for them to accidentally step in and leave a track. Well, that leaves an, an, an interesting point. Um, do they want us to find their tracks? Or is there some kind of methodology that they have of of making them go away? You know, is that something People they're con that are, um, consciously doing? Experts, military experts trained in escape and evasion, have had experience with these things say that they are just acting exactly like a military expert trained in escape evasion would, except they're way better at it than we are. So they're constantly covering their tracks and hiding their presence. They just do it by second nature because they're trained from the time they're, you know, infants apparently. That's how you do things, which is why you rarely find tracks when you're really big adults. 
even though you'd think you'd find them more commonly because they're so heavy, they sink in the ground. They're so good at hiding in dang tracks, you'd almost never find them. It's usually the smaller ones, you know, the 12 to 16 inch tracks, you know, from the juveniles and stuff. Whoops, they mess up more often, they leave tracks where you find their tracks. Um, you know, it's only the really good researcher you generally to find attraction to really, really big guys because they sort of know exactly where to look, but they're allowed to leave one that they're not too careful with. That was talking about seeing a pipe three over near Bridger, Montana during the middle of the winter making its way down a hillside. And it was carefully stepping from log to exposed boulder to like, you know, crushed stump, whatever anything it could do to avoid actually stepping in the snow and leaving a trap. That, that again shows, so, shows yeah. that. And they, there's a number of parts that they will actually um, like take a, uh, a branch or something and just wipe their footprints from behind them if they want to disappear their trail. They're smart enough to do that. So they can make, you know, it's another way they can make the trail go away. Yeah, and that, to me, that, that shows a, a different level of intelligence and, and precision that you're not going to find with an, with an ape. Yeah, no. Well, apes aren't concerned about if they leave tracks or not because they're not predators. Predators pay attention to tracks. They know that tracks lead to food. Apes don't do that because they're not looking for you know, food made out of meat. They're mostly looking at, you know, plant matter that can't get away. They jump up a tree, crawl up there, and grab it. Um, so this is a different thing. This is predatory behavior, you know, like a wolf or a mountain lion or something. They know what tracks are. They follow them. They follow the scent. They follow the tracks. They also know that if they leave them, things can follow them. That's why it's so hard to find mountain lion tracks. They know better. They're, they're careful to not leave tracks in you know, areas where anything's going to find them because it gives way to anything observant that <clears throat> there's a mountain lion around here. Uh, you know, they're stealth predators. They like to be up above and behind you when they leap on you and clamp their jaws around the back of your neck. Dangerous critter. That's, that's the number one predator in Montana is mountain lions, grizzly bears, second place. Yep, second second only to to Sasquatch, right? So, well, you know, if you're either talking about apex predator, it's always Bigfoot, unless there's a mountain giant around at the top of the list. Well, cool. We we really appreciate you taking the time. We can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day for us, and uh, you brought a lot of really awesome stuff to the table here that um, hopefully our our listeners can really latch latch onto and sink their teeth into, and I believe that that invitation is open to them as well, um, but probably more in the spring, right? You're you're not going to be doing much squatching here these next coming months. Uh, I don't do any in the winter because mostly where I go up is in the mountains, and you know I'm not going to be wading through snow up to my waist trying to get somewhere. <laughs> no, uh, and I have enough trouble getting around during the summer. I have mobility, so winter is completely out of question for me unless I'm on a snowmobile or something. It's not happening. But uh, I do have a meet greet planned for each summer. This year's, I think, is going to be in July. So, you know, if anybody wants to show up in July and go up the mountains for a few days and go looking for Bigfoot, come on over, show up. I'm going to have several previous guests from my show who are going to be here with us. So one of them that swears up and down that he's going to make this year is Bear from the Bigfoot Outlaws. So here'd be a chance to go squash with Bear and Duke. Ooh, that's fun. And you can listen to us argue about which direction we should go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I have, uh, you know, several several other people that have been on the show that are also in nearby areas that are saying for sure they're going to make it next summer. So it should be fun. There should be a little bit bigger group. And 
Um, you know, I've got areas where we could spread out 10, 20 different campsites and also be in, in an area where there's plenty of Bigfoot activity. Um, so it does, it's a fairly big group. You just don't clump up on one campsite. Right. And so they don't get disturbed and they'll still show up, check, check things out. Especially if you go into an area where humans really camp, they're going to come and check you out because they're curious. You're entertaining them. What are the silly humans doing? Right. Do Do you know if uh, Kat Hansen might be there this year? She might. You know, it depends on her situation. She's uh, she had a little bit of a underbender and got hurt here not too long ago, so she's kind of recovered from that. If she's got all of her uh, her health and mobility issues covered by somebody, she'd probably show up for it. So that'd be fun, also. Yeah. Well, um, did you want to go ahead and uh, plug your your uh, YouTube channel and your um, site one last time for our listeners, and then we can uh, sure. send you on your way. Any, all right. Anybody that wants to check out my ongoing uh, video and audio chats um, uh, <laughs> presentations, um, go over to Brian Sullivan. B r i a n s u l l i e a n. And actually, if you just bring up World Bigfoot Radio on YouTube, you generally will find the, the episodes. Otherwise, you go right to the channel, which is just my name. And I'm also on uh, Minds.com and, uh, you know, Game Motion, Nonstellar, uh, BitChute, yada, yada, yada. I got presence all over the place. But for right now, the main base is on YouTube, and uh, very soon it will be at WorldBigfootCentral.com. So make sure you come check that out. That should be up and operational here uh, within the next couple of weeks for sure. That's great. And I, I know uh, getting a website up is, is a lot of work and maintaining it's a lot of work. So I can appreciate that. So make sure that you, if you do go there and it's not up yet, to check back. And if you do go there also to um, thoroughly go through his stuff and check out his, his swag as well. Um, I look forward to, to getting one of those shirts for myself as well. So, um, yeah, that's fun stuff. Um, we got more than one great design done by a really excellent uh, artist too. Spiller Irwin's actually done artwork of Blag and uh, Michael Beers did one. And can't think of the other guy. There's another guy that did a really great one too. They're all available. Awesome. Well, we look forward to having you back on the show. We'll have to get back in touch with you. We've got a lot of different stuff, different avenues and different stuff to talk to you about. We know you've got more than just Bigfoot going on, but um, definitely this being your, your most exciting and, and uh, attractive to, to Squatchers. So we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, no problem, man. It was fun to be on your show and I, I wish you guys great success with it. I'm really very pleased that there's going to be another show emanating from this area. And, you know, just for the sake of your audience and Tran for mine and anybody else who cares to listen, there's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff happening in Montana and Idaho. And even two shows isn't enough to cover it. Plus, i got to deal with the rest of the world. Uh, you know, good luck. I hope you guys can keep up with it and we don't have to have, like, a third or a fourth show start around here to cover all of it. Well, we'd we'd love to have as much as possible, but yeah, we're we're definitely trying to plot ahead and um, you know, network and kind of get a good feel for things. It's it's really interesting how things kind of are opening up. So we we really appreciate yeah. that. I really appreciate it too, because I'll tell you what: the more shows there are that will actually cover things that are going on in this region, the more the local people will become you know aware that it, there are these shows out there and start listening to them and go. Wow, I hadn't encountered. There's somebody I could talk to about this. 
and an Ulster coming forward. Because I know for a fact there's tons of big push sites in Idaho and Montana, but like Alaska, most of the locals won't talk about it unless you're a local and then they don't want to go on a show or yada, yada, yada. So this encourages more of them to come forward and share some of the, the stories, you know, encounters and stuff that they've had. And it, there's a lot. There really is a lot of them there. Yeah, and um, trying to trying to find some of these people. I know a lot of people have a lot of a lot of pride, or you know, don't want to be ridiculed. I think that's one of the one of the reasons that people don't. But getting those to bubble up, I think that's one of our challenges that we have in the area. We've got a ton of hunters, ton of fishermen, and I bet a good percentage of them have had experiences. Yeah. Well, let me give you a tip. Go find those loggers. Get the retired ones that are actually willing to talk now. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. I bet. I bet. Well, thanks again. Um, We wish you well, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks very much, you guys. And again, I I wish you all the greatest success, and I hope everything goes absolutely flawlessly for you. Thanks for having me on the show. Sweet. Peace. You have a good night. Thanks.